Wednesday 51, which can be found on page 86 in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 51. Question 126. Which is the fifth petition? And the answer, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us. And it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Debt is something that uh, most of us carry. We have business debt. We have a mortgage on our home. Maybe we have student loans or or other forms of debt. Now, some of you may not have any of the any of this debt yet. You might be too young. And some of you, if you're independently wealthy, may not ever have any sort of debt. Well, that's not actually true because if you're a citizen of this country, you carry some of the national debt. Our national debt, as of yesterday, was $34 trillion. That means, if it works out per person, we each owe $101,500 apiece. Most of us will be able to pay off our debt. Other, of course, than the national debt. It will take us years of hard work and wise choices, but it's possible. It's possible to reach the point when you don't owe the banks or when you don't owe anyone any money. Now, the Bible isn't silent when it comes to giving financial advice. It tells us to be good stewards. It tells us to give liberally, to manage our our money well. But we also find this this language of finance, this language of of accounting uh, used in the Bible when it comes to what we shall call moral accounting. We even have it here in, in this petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts. When we pray this, we're acknowledging, we're acknowledging that we have a moral debt to God. This is what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. He doesn't use the word sin or iniquity or transgression. It is those things, of course. But Jesus here uses the word debt. We need to be forgiven for our debts. We owe something to God. In a sense, he's the great accountant to whom we must give account. And the reality is, is that we have been born with and are accumulating a moral debt 
to God. And one day, a great audit is going to be performed in all of our lives. And if we are found to be in debt to God, we will be eternally punished. There's also a connection here. When the Lord speaks about forgiving our debts, there's a very close connection here between us being forgiven, us asking for our debts to be forgiven, and also us forgiving others their debt. And what I want to do this evening is I want to look at a parable that Jesus tells us, a parable um, that flushes out the similarities between financial debt and, and moral debt. And we've already read this together. Our text is found in Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35. And it's here where Jesus tells us the parable of the unforgiving servant. And our sermon this evening is titled, The Gracious Master and the Harsh Servant. And we're going to be looking at four different points. The master quantified forgiveness. The master grants forgiveness. The servant withholds forgiveness. And the master confronts the servant. Jesus has just finished telling his disciples about how to reconcile and forgive a brother who has sinned against them. You see this in, in verses 15 through, through 20. He shows there that forgiveness is a, is a powerful force that, that helps enable unity between brothers. Well, following this, of course, Peter has a question. He asks, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Tell seven times? Now, perhaps Peter is asking this question because he has something going on in his life. Something similar to this. Maybe there's another disciple or, or a family member who, who has been consistently wronging him. Or someone who's asking for his forgiveness, but then they're going and, and sinning again, doing the same thing against him. And Peter's wanting to know at what point he can finally stop forgiving them. And Peter asked here, he says, tell seven times. Because Peter knows seven is the perfect number. It's a lar and it's a large enough number that he would be considered being gracious if he forgave someone seven times but we all know what jesus answers here he answers peter and says i say not unto thee until seven times but until 70 times seven jesus here uses a large number he uses seven and 70 perfect numbers he uses a large number that's equal to 490 and jesus here isn't saying you must forgive someone 490 times. He's saying, this is the perfect number. This is a large number. But he's saying you must be infinitely gracious in pardoning those who have sinned against you. Jesus actually is less concerned about the number of times than he is concerned about the heart of the one who, who is forgiving. He calls us as Christians to be gracious and merciful all the time. 
These are, in fact, the marks of a true Christian. You know, when it comes to other gracious acts, you know, for instance, loving our neighbor, we don't ask, how many times should I love my neighbor? We don't ask things like, how many times should I obey my parents? No, these are are good commands. Things that we need to continue to do all of our life. Mercifulness and and graciousness should not be reserved for, for only a special few or only for a few times. There shouldn't be a set amount of forgiveness that, that we extend to, to someone else. Jesus' desire for us is that we would be ready to forgive. That we would have a posture of forgiveness to all those who have wronged us. When others ask for our forgiveness, we shouldn't be reluctant to offer it to them but willingly and lovingly grant it to those that ask it of us. But we must be careful. Ah, you say, I I know exactly what you're going to say here. I must be careful that people don't take advantage of me, that they don't abuse my forgiving spirit. Fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. This is not what I'm saying here. If you're willing to forgive others their debts, if you have this posture, this fruit of the Spirit within you, I can almost guarantee you will be taken advantage of. People will abuse you as a Christian and take advantage of you. People will abuse your mercy. But we must be careful. We must be careful, especially if we are the one asking for forgiveness. We must be careful that we do not abuse the forgiveness of others or that we turn our request into a demand that tries to put guilt on the one who is forgiving. This we can do by saying things like, look, I've apologized, I've I've asked for forgiveness, now it's your duty, you need to forgive me. Forgiveness is never ours to take, it's only ours to give. You know, we have, have such deviant hearts, I like to twist things, we have hearts that like to manipulate situations where we can take something as beautiful as forgiveness and manipulate it to suit our own, our own wicked purposes. Somehow when we have wronged someone, we get this idea in our head that just because we've confessed our sin and asked for forgiveness, we now have the moral high ground. We can now dictate the actions of the one whom we've wronged. Perhaps you say, look, I've, I've apologized. Let's just move on and forget about it and then expect everything to return to normal. Meanwhile, sadly, we've greatly wronged someone. And we shouldn't demand things from those we've wronged. We shouldn't 
make them guilty and feel like they need to forgive us. And nor should we demand that everything return to the way it was before. Sin has an effect. Forgiveness and grace can overcome much. And it is always our desire that there would be full healing. But we must understand that there are scars. There are scars to sin. The scars of betrayal, of abuse and negligence. And sometimes these scars don't fully heal. Our bodies, our souls, and creation itself bears the effects of sin. Therefore, when we sin, when we sin against others and forgiveness of granted, often the scar of that sin can still remain. It may fade as time goes by. The Lord can, can certainly do miracles. But often, some effect of our sin still remains. A level of mistrust may remain in a relationship. The relationship may become more distant and cautious. Those who were friends now become acquaintances. Forgiveness is entirely of mercy and grace, and it's never for us to demand. We can ask for it, we can plead that it would be shown, but never should we use it to manipulate others. One other way we can abuse forgiveness is by counting on the successive nature of forgiveness. We know that the Christian principle is to forgive someone 70 times 7, and knowing this, we begin a cycle of sinning and then asking for forgiveness. Each time telling the person that they need to forgive you for their sin because you've asked for forgiveness. So what do we do? What do we do when someone asks for forgiveness? Do we have to try and figure out if they're really sorry for what they did? Do we know that? Do we know if they're really sorry? Well, we don't. We can't exactly tell from their words, but we will eventually see it in their lives. If they continue in their sin, if they continue to do what they've apologized for, it's a sign they aren't truly repentant for what they did. And we're going to see this modeled. We're going to see this modeled in, in this parable as we, we go forward into it. And we're going to see many more principles of forgiveness that, that the Lord shows us here. Jesus tells us here of a worldly king. A king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. These servants were in charge of probably of different aspects of the kingdom. Perhaps they collected the kingdom taxes or that they were to pay into the, into the king's treasury. And if we transferred what was, was happening back then to today, we, we could picture accountants and finance uh, gurus with their spreadsheets set out before them, going over accounts of all the king's servants, 
finding out how they've used the king's money or if they've collected enough tax. We can picture them sitting there and then they discover this one servant who owes the king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents is not equal to $10,000. Let's put this number into a little bit of perspective. The average worker back then owed one denarii per day. One talent is equal to 6,000 denarii. This servant owes 10,000 talents. It would take a worker 20 years to earn 6,000 talents. It would take them 20 years to earn, I'm sorry, 6,000 denarii. It would take them 20 years to earn one talent. But this servant doesn't owe one talent. He owes 10,000 talents. So if I did the math correctly, it would take a worker 200,000 years to pay off this debt. So let's put it in a little bit perspective uh, of today. This total debt is equal to approximately $6 billion. And if someone today put $30,000 a year towards this debt with no interest charged, it would take them 200,000 years to pay it off. This is an astonishingly large amount of money. And there's a reason here that Jesus uses the Greek word morion here. Morion here. Literally, this is the word 10,000. In, in the ancient Greek, when they used this word, it was like we say when we talk about there were zillions of mosquitoes in the woods. It's a number. It's a word meant to represent an incalculable amount a number far above what we're able to count. And so this servant, owing this debt, is brought before the king. He has no money, he has nothing. And the king orders him to be sold and into slavery, his money to go, to go towards his debt. But if this happened, this would hardly make a dent. So then what does this servant do? He falls down on his knees and he implores his master, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. How? How is he going to do this? He is nothing. He has, he has no money. He owes his master 200,000 years of work. He's still thinking that his efforts will somehow rescue him from this great debt. He's still vainly hoping that he can somehow arrange something to pay back this king. What a silly man. If there's a time to give up, it's, it's now. He's in way over his head. He owes way too much money. the servant. He's an exact picture of who we are by nature. 
We, we have a debt like this man. And each day we're alive, our debt is getting greater and greater. Our sins are piling up. And we're not dealing with a small debt. Each of us has an incalculable amount of sin. We were born. We were called to be servants of this king, but we've squandered this. We've squandered his gifts. We've racked up an incredibly large debt. If we get out our our moral ledger and we lay out the debit column and we lay out the credit column, there's nothing in our debit column. And our credit column is rapidly being added to. Pages and pages and pages of what we owe. So what do we do when we realize or when we are confronted with our debt? Do we throw ourselves at our king's mercy? Do we run to him to help, for help. We might acknowledge him. But then often we're, we're just like the servant. We're like, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. How? How are you going to do that? Are you going to become a better person? Are you going to stop sinning? Are you going to to stop that that one sin you keep doing? Are you going to pray more? Are you going to go to church more? Do your devotions more? Are you going to devote your life to the poor and homeless? If you do one of these or or all of these things, and these are good things to, to earn God's favor... You will not even begin to pay back the debt that you owe. We owe the Lord so much. We can't begin to pay this back. But thankfully, thankfully our Lord is merciful and gracious. And it's to him and it's to his mercy that we must fly. And we see this mercy portrayed for us here in this parable. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Now let's put this in perspective again. Can you imagine forgiving someone such a massive debt? A personal debt of at least six billion dollars. It's incredible. It's inconceivable that anyone would forgive a debt that large. Yet this is exactly what the Lord does when he forgives us our sin. We have accumulated a massive death of debt. Our sins have piled up on top of each other. We only sin by nature continually. Our sins are great and grievous and they cry out against us. The Lord has mercy on us. 
has pity on us. He releases us from bondage to sin. And he forgives us our great debt of sin. And we're so used to hearing about it. We're so used to hearing about the Lord forgiving sin that sometimes it's, it's an afterthought in our, in our minds. It seems perfectly normal. It seems that it's not that extraordinary at all that the Lord forgives sins. Let's stop for a moment. Let's take our time and reflect upon the wonder of the Lord's forgiveness First, let's consider the Lord himself, our creator king. He gives us life. He blesses us with good things. He he calls us to follow him and offers us new life. He's perfect. He is good. He is holy and righteous. He is the picture of perfection. Picture perfection. Picture love and beauty and holiness and justice and righteousness. And you are just beginning to get a picture of who God is. And now, consider your sin. You're born with it. You've become used to it. You don't see it for what it really is. That every sin you commit is a treasonous act against God. And that we willingly commit innumerable amounts of them. We do not obey God. We break each of his commandments. We refuse to do what is required. And we deliberately do what is prohibited. We cooperate with sin and unrighteousness. We speak about struggling sin, about being an unwilling slave to it, but the reality is, is that we eagerly put on the shackles and chains of sin and embrace our rebellion against God. And in this way, each of us, by nature, each of us has accumulated a massive debt of sin that demands justice. In the parable, there is one servant with a massive debt. But in real life, not only is there an innumerable debt, but there are innumerable sinners with an inestimable sin debt. A people and a debt that no man can number. And the creator king, our creator king, sitting on his throne, he has pity. He's moved with compassion. He releases, he he frees the servant and forgives them all this mountain of debt. Every sin is wiped away. And he takes you. He takes me. He takes our infinite, our our mountain of sin. And he says it's gone. Wonderful. This is amazing. 
That our Lord is moved with compassion to, for sinners like us. Sinners who by nature hate him and only desire to, to spite him. And now he comes again tonight he, and he calls us, he calls you sinner to come to him. To repent and believe in him. To bring your mountain of sin to him. He will wipe it all away. So please come. Come for the first time. Come again, dear brother and sister. Come to Jesus Christ and he will take your debt. And he will wipe away all your sin. And as the Lord forgives our sins, he also calls us to forgive other sins. And this isn't something that's always hard to do. Sometimes it can be quite easy to forgive others, especially if it doesn't cost us anything. I think that's sometimes how we think about the Lord forgiving us. We think it's easy. We think that, figuratively speaking, the Lord snaps his fingers and everything's taken care of. The sinner is saved. All his sins are wiped away. Easy. But look at the king in this parable. Yes, he does forgive this servant. He does take away his debt. But now this king is left to deal with a $6 billion debt. He still lost $6 billion. The court accountants are still sitting there. They're still demanding that the, the books be balanced. They want the accounts to be closed. And the only way that this can happen is if $6 billion is put back into the king's treasury. So what has to happen? Well, the king has to personally take on himself this debt. He has to give his own money in order for the sin's debt to be wiped out. And in the end, we'll have the same thing. Our, the books of our lives need to be balanced. Our accounts need to be closed. And we'll either have to pay back the debt ourselves or the debt will be paid back some other way. The Lord willingly forgives us. He willingly wipes away our debt. But it comes at a great cost. The Lord's holiness and justice demands that our sin be dealt with, that our debt be paid. And we will either spend an innumerable number of years in hell trying to pay back our debt, or the Lord Jesus Christ has already paid our debt for us. He takes on himself the immeasurable amount of sin that has been committed by an innumerable number of people. 
And Christ bore this sin. He experienced it in this world. He experienced the justice of God against sin as he hung dying on the cross. Imagine the anguish of this amount of sin. The anguish of this amount of sin from this amount of people weighing down upon you. Only God himself in the person of Jesus Christ could bear this weight. And even he asked that it would be removed from him. Such is the love of God for us. That as John says, he sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And herein is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the Lord's heart to sinners. That we would be awakened by grace through faith to to embrace His mercy. To believe the gospel and follow Him. What a wonderful picture this parable is. What a wonderful picture this parable is of the Lord's mercy to his people. But this parable also includes a stern warning. A stern warning to us as well. But we'll look at this after we sing. From Psalter 312, verses 1 through 4. Psalter 312, verses 1 through four.
When the servant leaves the king's palace, he is no doubt relieved. He has no debt that he has to pay off. His family and himself aren't going to be sold into slavery for the rest of their lives. He's glad he bowed before the king. The fact that he lamented of what he did, it worked. Bowing on his knees and crying out for mercy was a good thing to do because it caused the king to have mercy. He's glad he took that approach of being the penitent debtor rather than being defiant and defensive. Promising to pay back the king was, was also a great added touch. Promising to do the impossible must have influenced the king to have pity. What I'm showing here is, and based on how this servant acts, is that this servant is attributing the cancelling of his debt not to the mercy of the king, but to his own ingenuity. He thinks he was smart enough, that he worked the right angles, that he pulled the right heartstrings and, and got what he wanted. And so now he walks away from the king, patting himself on the back for a job well done. Now maybe we've done something like this. Maybe children, you sometimes you see yourself maybe acting this way. You've you've got in trouble for being naughty, and you you don't want to be punished for what you've did. So even though you don't really feel bad for what you did, you rather enjoyed it. You fear the punishment and. So your reaction is to cry really hard and exclaim over and over again how sorry you were for what you did. Or you weren't really sorry for what you did, only sorry that you would be punished for it. This is a, a little bit like what this servant did. And we see the effects of that. We see what happens when, he, when the servant leaves the king with an unchanged heart. He attributes his good fortune, the fact that he's been forgiven to his own efforts rather than to the king's immense mercy. This servant is not thankful. He's not filled with awe for his king. He's not impressed with the immensity of his debt and the infinite mercy of the king. His actions show that he's not a changed man but exactly the same as he was before. So it's no wonder that when he encounters a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii, he grabs him by the throat, choking him and saying, pay me what you owe. The servant owes him a hundred denarii. This is a, about 20 weeks of labor or $12,000 made at about $15 per hour. It's still a, a substantial amount of money, and there's a reason for this that we'll look at, at shortly. It, but it's nothing compared to the debt that the servant owed. In fact, it's one five hundred five hundred thousandth of the debt 
that the first servant owed to the king. But it's still a lot of money. And Jesus does this purposely. He does this to show us something. Jesus wants to show us that it's really easy to forgive when we have to forgive something small. But here the Lord is calling us to forgive others even when they have greatly wronged us. He calls us to forgive even when we are owed a quite sizable debt. Now this first servant does not have compassion on the second servant because he is not a changed man. The king's mercy has not affected him and so he continues to live his life much the same way as he did before. If we meet Jesus and we experience his mercy, if our debt is really canceled, it will show in our lives. When we consider the amount, immense debt that we've accumulated and the fact that our merciful Savior willingly took it from us and paid the price for it, it changes. It should. It ought to change our lives. It shouldn't then be such a big deal for us to forgive others for the things that they do against us. In fact, it should be our joy to forgive others for their debts. Because Christ has forgiven us exceedingly more. We see this portrayed in the life of Jesus himself when he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we see this in Stephen, who cried out, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. The Lord calls us to be like this. To have hearts of love and forgiveness to, to, to others, to be willing to forgive one another. We're called to be imitators of him, imitators of his, of his love for sinners. Like Christ, we are called to be gracious and kind and merciful to others because he has been infinitely gracious and kind and merciful to us. And so, if the Lord has paid our debt, if he has paid your debt, it should be evident in your lives. It should become more evident, for the Holy Spirit will work. The Holy Spirit will change you. But if you look at yourself and you're finding that this isn't happening in your life, if you find it incredibly hard to forgive others, if you find it incredibly hard to, to love and be gracious to others, what the Lord's doing in this parable is he's warning you. He's warning you here to examine your life to see if you are like this first servant. You need to ask yourself some questions. Are you attributing your salvation to your own efforts? 
to your own experiences. Why do you think your debt is paid? Is it because you prayed the right prayer? Is it because you experienced sufficient mercy or misery for your sins? Or is it because of Christ's mercy? Is it because he lived a perfect life? Is it because he suffered for you? Is it because he died on the cross for you and is your only hope? Is your only joy and trust in this wonderful Savior and in the Father and in the Holy Spirit who perfectly together elected and worked out and applied salvation to you? And if this Jesus, if this Christ is your only hope, if he is your joy, rejoice. And go out and live for him. Reflect his mercy. Reflect his patience. His love. And go out basking in the wonder of his grace and forgiveness for sinners. Amen. Our faithful and heavenly Lord. And Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank Thee so much for Thy graciousness, for Thy mercy to us, wretched sinners. And Lord, we pray that in this week, in our lives, Thy grace would be evident, that as Thou hast forgiven us so much, we would be willing to love and forgive those around us. Help us to live this out in our lives, to reflect Thee in all that we do. Help thy message, thy gospel to, to be preached by each one of us through our lives and through our words. And so, Lord, we pray that thy word would profoundly change us and mold us to be like thee. Watch over us. Protect us in this week, O Lord. Keep us from sin. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.